Hey everyone, today's guest is Mick Conroy, bassist for the Colchester, England new wave band, Modern English. Together we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the smash hit single, I Melt With You, taken from their 1982 album, After the Snow. Mick was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and was quick to credit producer Hugh Jones with pulling the reins on the band, getting them to be a bit more constrained and focused than they were on their first record, for they had more of an anything-goes attitude. Mick recalled that it was the spring of 1982. The weather was warming up a bit in England, and there was an overall feeling of optimism within the band that definitely shows in the track. The studio where they worked didn't have a lot of gear, but they made do with what they had, and the results speak for themselves. This 40-year-old song is still everywhere. I asked Mick if he still gets a kick out of playing it live, and he answered with a resounding yes. He's grateful for the song, all the doors that it's open for the band, and continues to open. So for all this and a whole lot more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, Mick, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to have you. This is really cool how this happened. One of my band, Less Than Jake's former producer, Steve Kravak, is doing live sound for you. I saw him post something the other day, and I hit him up and said, oh my gosh, if we could get someone, someone from Modern English to be on my songwriting podcast, I would be elated, and here you are. Thank you. Excellent. Well, it's, uh, well, well done, Steve Kravak, and uh, well done for spotting it. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, uh, <laughs> we've worked with Steve for about... Um, I don't know, six years now. He's uh, part of the furniture. Good God. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So your your story's amazing. I mean, 40 years on, and here we are talking about a track that you wrote all the way back then. Did you ever think you'd still be talking about this when you wrote this as a as a young man? And, uh, absolutely not. I mean, it's, I, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and uh, you know, generally, uh, people have said the same thing. You know, it's like it was. Uh, I listened to the Toto Africa podcast. It's classic the way um, songs that you know the band in the studio are thinking. I'm not sure about this one. Is it going to make the the album? And then it does, and it it walks off and has a life of its own. We we had no idea, absolutely none. I guess if anyone were to ever say to me, "Oh yeah, we knew this was going to be a smash," I'd, I'd probably have to like I'd probably have to step back for a moment and go, "Wait a second, are they are they pulling my leg here?" You know, because how would you know? Nice. You know, especially when you're that young. None of us were think. I wasn't thinking about money. I just no. wanted to maybe you know, if people showed up to the pub to see me play, I could get a, maybe a beer or two out of it. That was that was a home run, right? Yeah, I mean, when like like you said, it was forty years ago. You know, our hope was that uh, John Peel might play it you know right you know that, <laughs> yeah. you know if it gets played on late night radio we're um kind of validated you know it's like someone likes it he's uh you know he can play it to other people we weren't so um you know arrogant that we thought we were like onto something we just you know we were just doing another track on the album right and 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 for those outside of the uk john peel uh just renowned in england basically uh kind of like uh 
you know, we had Dick Clark over here, you know, yeah. American Bandstand. John, if you got on John Peel or Top of the Pops, like that was something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, John Peel was even more um, alternative. You know, it was uh, what you heard during the daytime on BBC Radio One was, you know, like top forty radio here in America. You know, and uh, you know, it would have to be like, um, you know, John Peel was like the equivalent of. Uh, you know, going to Boston and hear, you know, the town, the city of Boston and hearing um, college radio in America for the first time. You know, you'd hear things like um, REM and, um, you know, Susie and the Banshees on suddenly, you know, these college radio stations. In Even in England, it was um, during the daytime, it was pure pop. Right. Well, the band formed in 1979 in Colchester, uh, Essex, uh, in England, which is northeast of, of the London area, not too far. And uh, Mick plays uh, the bass and sings for the band. You're an original member, as well as Robbie Gray on vocals and Gary McDowell on guitar and vocals. And the band for this recording was rounded out by Richard Brown on the drums and Stephen Walker on the keyboards. And in 1979, you guys signed to four AD records. Your debut album, Mesh and Lace, was released in 81. And your second album, After the Snow, was released in May of 82. And that featured I Melt With You. And I mean, I know that you, <laughs> you've you definitely lived this, but I was just thinking as I'm going through this song the past couple of days, I've heard this song everywhere. I heard it at college parties. I heard it at, at punk rock parties. I heard it coming out of the mall. I heard it at the doctor's office. It's just one of those songs that's woven into the fabric of society. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to all of the above. I mean, yeah. Sorry for stating the obvious, but no, yeah, no, it's no, just—it's no. incredible. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's completely true. Uh, you know, I um, you know, you don't really get uh, you know elevator music anymore. You know, but I, <laughs> you know, my ambition, my hope is that one day I get into a lift and I can hear, you know, like a you know just a, a background, you know, cheesy <laughs> version of the song, even though there have been cheesy versions of it recorded. Yes, and I found I found several of them on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy called richard cheese he, <laughs> yes i mean his his version is uh when i first heard it i i thought god you know what what have we done i'll stop the world and meld with you you've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time there's nothing you and I won't do I'll stop the world and meld with you It's just nice to, to hear so many different versions of it as well. I mean, there's hundreds on YouTube. Well, and, and speaking of versions, I want to get into that in a moment. But the album was produced by the band and Hugh Jones. And Hugh Jones is also known for Echoing the Bunnymen, The Sound, and The Damned, among others. A fantastic producer. And something really cool. I just, I loved this movie back in the day. 1983, Nicolas Cage starred in a romantic comedy called Valley Girl. And uh, I Melt With You was featured in the film. And of course... It was all over this new thing back then called music television, MTV. And, you know, I did a little research on this because, Mick, we're going to talk about the single version today, the single edit that was used 
in the video, which is about 19 seconds shorter than the album version. There's a couple little differences. One of the biggest differences is, is the single edit was mixed in mono. And I think I know why. MTV back then, they may have had stereo capability, but most of the TVs were in mono. Is that correct? Uh, do you know what? When, um, when, when we recorded the song, honestly, we had no idea, you know, that um, television, MTV, being in the movies, you know, Valley Girl was ever going to happen. It was uh, purely because, um, you know, in this was uh, 1982 and um, singles, if they got played on the, uh, uh, you know, radio station, people had mono radios. They had transistor radios. Right. And uh, and also we liked the, um, you know, like the old uh, Beatles and Rolling Stones records. They were all recorded in mono. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, straight down the middle, you know, and um, Sony Walkmans. I don't even know if people, you know, had Sony Walkmans at the time, you know. They were, if they did, they were just coming out. Yeah. And, you know, Mick, you just said up the middle. And for the listeners, you know, mono is just, everything's there. In stereo, you're getting a, a stereo mix, which means a right and a left mix. That's why a lot of times on the show, I'll talk about, oh, this guitar came in here, panned off to the left. And I'll tell you. Listen to the mono version. It's great. It's the version everyone pretty much knows. When you listen to that album version, wow, there's stuff panned off, and it's a great mix. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I, um, I part of my homework, I was thinking I've got to listen to um, uh, I'm Out With You again. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you're going to probably play it on tour in a day or two. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I, I actually made so, I wrote some notes down, and I was thinking about how... Um, I had a feeling you'd talk about the seven inch and uh, yes. I just wrote mono. So I was thinking I don't have to worry <laughs> about any, um, you know, pans or, um, you know, I, I think on, um, you know, the album version, there's the, you know, the piano comes in on the, the futures open wide. Yes. But I have a feeling that might be stereo and going across, but on the, on the single, but I mean, it's quite a, catchy little piano part you know i think oh it's unreal no i think it's everything is just kind of in your face as we would say yeah uh you know i I do remember you know we recorded it at rockfield in wales the residential studio it's quite a famous studio right yeah you know i mean you're you're uh, you're you're amused though you go to enough studios you know and it's like you know in when you're young you put them on the biggest speakers possible you know (laughs) yeah so you're kind of being like you know and and we'd kind of like do the um you know switch it from mono to stereo to see how much difference it made you know yeah we thought well you know it's it's not much different but then of course you go down from the the big studio speakers to the ns10s you know, mm-hmm. the Yamahas. And then in those days, it would be a, a small Roberts transistor radio. Then you'd go down to, you know, the radio. So you could hear it on a very small speaker. There, you know, there was a possible, you know, we thought, well, this is definitely the poppiest song, the, the catchiest song on the album. So there's a chance it could be released as a single. We finally did the mono version later on. You know, but we'd, we'd test everything because, you know, when you got down to the single speaker of the Roberts radio, everything's in mono anyway. Mm-hmm. No matter, I mean, here at home, I am, um, you know, for walking around, I have one of these, you know, a boat. Yeah. 
revolve thing or whatever they're called. Sure, um, sure. You know, I only have one, so it's a bit like everything's in mono in my world anyway. Bluetooth speaker, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've got a JBL thing that's about this wide, and sometimes I find I've got my nose up against it to see if I can hear <laughs> Well, something I know you can agree with, I've said this before, nothing sounds better than a recording you're proud of in the studio. When the engineer producer pushes up all the faders, and they're coming through those big speakers you're talking. It's just, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I ever heard. And then you get the cassette out to the car and you're like, okay, it's still good, but it doesn't sound like it did in there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do. Um, in the, I, I'm in New York now, but in England, uh, you know, um bases where me and lobby also live there i have a studio and um you know i'm forever going into my car you know to to see what it sounds like in my um sure you know just you know compared to what i was listening to earlier then i put on it you know it's like mix one or sorry bounce one and then 10 minutes later bounce two until you get to like definitely <laughs> final bounce seven guitar on left hand side <laughs> And I'm forever in my car, and the car is, you know, it's quite a good judge of um, what you're doing, you know, listening to what you've mixed in a car. Especially if you listen to all your other music in there, that's a great gauge. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, I mean, often you wonder why, um, you know, when you're in the studio and you listen to stuff from the big speakers, you know that no one else, hardly anyone experiences stuff like that. Right. You know, it's kind of like how studios make their money. You know, we've got really mm -hmm. speakers that, you know, sound amazing. Well, I got to tell you something. I'm sitting here chuckling inside because I spent about 20 minutes last night with my producer, Chris, uh -huh. freaking out about there's a mono mix for the single, but the album version is the stereo. And then they also re-recorded a version in 1990. What do we talk about? <laughs> Which yeah. I'm, you're just you're just so nonchalant. You're like, oh, yeah, the mono version. So this is great. We're going to talk about the single version. And speaking of that 1990 version, I did listen to that and what was the reason for re-recording it then was it a was it a label issue you you know if you a lot of times we have re-record rights if we re-record something we could use it for car commercials etc we'd spent a few years of uh, being quite dormant me and robbie after um our uh fourth album that and tvt records in new york they mm -hmm. um i mean the guy who ran that steve gottlieb was uh, convinced that, um, you know, I'm out of you could have done better. And so he um, basically signed us up and said, you know, you really should do I'm out of you again. And, you know, we thought, well, you know, how much? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, and we said, okay, you know, and, uh, you know, we, um, it was our first time actually, you know, I mean, you know, I love all music, and there's so many different versions that people do of songs anyway. And, um, you know, like David Bowie, how many times has he re-recorded Space Oddity or done different versions yeah. of Heroes? You know, er Eric Clapton did Layla. I mean, there's been a, there's been tons of them, but in this instance, it, this was pretty much like the original version, just, uh, you know, sounded different because technology, I think, got different in seven or eight years. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, we still recorded that onto um, multi-track, you know, the first first time, you know, two-inch tape. When we um, did the first one, it was we only had twenty-four tracks, and then when we did it the second time, we were, you know, there was a forty-eight track, you know, two uh, yeah. machines going around, you know, which um, that was in about nineteen eighty-nine, 
And we'd already started to use stuff like Notator and Creator, which was like mm-hmm. forerunner to Logic, which you're using now. Yeah. And that everyone uses, but or Pro Tools. But um, I still think the original version, the Hugh Jones one that we did, has is the most charming of the ones that we've done. Yeah. You're calling it charming. I'm I'm calling it magical. There's something about that one. There's a spirit of that one, and and there's sometimes there's been bands that re-recorded stuff that that uh, you know captures the spirit better. Very rarely I find that you know, and in this instance, I, there's just something about that original track that just it's just awesome. I, I think a lot of that has to do with um, the the studio Rockfield. I mean, there's so many amazing records that have been made. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw the Queen film. Bohemian. Yes. Okay. Well, that you know, they're they're in Rockfield in that film. You know, well, the actors are. You know, and there's a yeah. And uh, I think, wow, you know, that they actually are in Rockfield, except they had a chandelier. You know, for a Freddie Mercury scene, <laughs> not a chandelier at the studio. <laughs> Well, yeah, they got to they got to b- build the movie up a little bit, but yeah. in all, you guys have released 8 records. Your most recent one was Take Me to the Trees in 2016, and last year for the 40th anniversary of the album After the Snow and I Melt With You, you guys uh did a Tonight Show appearance with Jimmy Fallon that was just absolutely fantastic. You guys sound like you did 40 years ago. There was a great uh, day. I mean, that, I think that was the, in the first time in absolutely ages that we'd actually done anything on television. And it was so, um, it was a really good show to be on, obviously. You know, it was like really exciting, you know, that yeah. we were on the Jimmy Fallon show. And uh, I mean, he was uh, such a nice guy, you know, and he was, you know, genuinely really excited about it. So, you know, you kind of think, I wonder what he got up to, you know, 40 years ago when this record was, you know, people have, <laughs> they have so many kind of like, you know, stories, like most people will tell you, you know, that yeah. people have, a, you know, everyone has a story that's related to, um, you know, I'm out of you. Some of them are, you can't repeat and others are just a nod and a wink and you kind of get the idea. Well, I heard this song coming out of my clock radio in 1982 <laughs> when I was nine years old. The mono version, because my clock radio was definitely mono. Okay, so I wasn't getting up much to then, uh, Mick. I'll tell you, though, about 10 years later when I was in college at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Yeah, I, I, I definitely did some party into this song. So it's uh, <laughs> and we'll we'll save we'll save that for another podcast. That's all I'll say about that. But uh, I want to I want to jump into the mono single edit right now of I Melt With You. Three minutes and 50 seconds, eight bar intro, insanely danceable swing on the drum groove here, along with bass, keyboards, I think clean guitar. And is that a 12 string acoustic on there? Actually, do you know, I think it's um, there is a twelve string, and there's also a, 
an ovation uh, guitar. Because it's interesting. It sounds kind of chorusy, which I almost thought at first, maybe this is just two acoustics playing, but I'm like, no, I think there's a 12 string in there. Yeah. And also it's going through a Leslie speaker. Okay. That's what, oh, that's awesome. I mean, one really good thing about Hugh, Hugh Jones is that, um, you know, on, on our earlier recordings, it was like loads of noise, effects, pedals, and, um, you know, it's quite chaotic, our first album and our first uh, earlier recordings. Hugh kind of reined us in a bit, and uh, he uh, everything he went for was, uh, you know, natural. If there's a, a distorted guitar that's generally for a Vox AC30, microphones the distance and cor- and doors are open for corridors there's you know all of that but um the intro is definitely um you know the i'm quite sure it's a leslie i know we put a lot of guitars through the leslie mm-hmm. and there's a lot of um that at rockfield there's an uh an echoplex room as well further down that we'd put a cabin and a mic in there as well for the listeners a leslie is a a it's like a speaker that kind of rotates. How would you describe it? It it, it rotates the sound and, and uh, gives it this almost flangey type. It's it's awesome. Yeah, they're they're made for uh, Hammond organs originally, and uh, you know it has, it gives it a kind of like a chorus type. I I, I think the word is uh, you know a, a Doppler effect. You know, like a police siren. Yeah. You know, when Nina, not exactly sure where the sound's coming from because it's being pointed in different directions. And it's super cool that, you know, you brought up that producer Hugh Jones kind of reined you guys in because even with this track, and we'll get into it, there's so much going on. And I think the reason that the track allows so much to go on, like the keyboard parts and the guitar parts are so busy underneath the vocals. It, it shouldn't work, but it does. And I, I think it's because the whole song only goes between C major and F major for the whole thing, except the two musical interludes yeah. that happen in the track. And again, we'll get there. Not trying to get too far ahead of myself, but as I'm going through this song, I'm like, how there's so many times my band, it's like, yeah, but I got this great guitar part. It's like, yeah, but it's stepping all over the vocal. I'm like, but the guitar part's great. Like the vocal's better. Your guitar part's not going in there, you know? And in here, there's just so much stuff. Um, After we get out of this intro, we get into verse one. Moving forward, using all my breath. Making love to you was never second best. I know you didn't write the lyrics, uh, Mick, but I'm going to ha- I'm gonna read these and have you set them up as best as you can. Uh, did Robbie write this uh, lyric? Uh, Rob did, and uh, with a, a lot of uh, guidance from Hugh. I mean, with, with uh, modern English, it's like the music's always done first. And uh, before we started um, recording the album, we did a lot of pre-production with Hugh. So we knew cu- what we were doing. Keyboards are always done last in the studio. And um, vocals are always done, you know, the the vocals are the very last thing that goes on. 
in in rehearsals we were in the uh the studio in london alaska rehearsal studio uh robbie would you know there'd be a lot of kind of him you know spitting out words lyrics uh, melodies etc etc and uh that i'll stop the world and melt with you was definitely in there and uh, he was biting furiously you know to try and kind of like keep up with everyone it's definitely Rob who was uh, who navigated the lyrics of that one. One more thing before we get in the verse one, I wanted to mention about the intro. It's doing this like Tom thing with the drums, and yeah. it's actually the chorus feel of what's happening there in the intro. But verse one lyrics, moving forward using all my breath, making love to you was never second best. I saw the world thrashing all around your face, never really knowing it was always mesh and lace which i have to ask on that last line there mesh and lace was the title of your debut record correct yeah so was that just uh, a, a kind of fun a fun lyric to throw in there for the maybe the fans or what you know how'd that come about yeah i mean it was a uh, uh, i mean mesh and lace was kind of like good bad yin yang you know black white and uh don't forget we were very young so it was a uh, you know imagery was um you know, it was quite important to us, especially with our artwork that we had. And, uh, you know, these lyrics have been analysed so many times. And I've heard Rob on occasions tell us a completely different story about what they mean. <laughs> and I love that because I've done that before, too. You get bored. Hey, I've told this story 30 times. I'm going to make something up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is mesh and lace an English colloquialism? I haven't heard that term used before. No, no. It was, it was, uh, we had a song called uh, Mesh and Lace. And, um, uh, it didn't actually make the album, the first Mesh and Lace album. That's why we called it Mesh and Lace. But uh, the chorus for that song was trapped in a maze of mesh and lace. It's, I thought it was quite a good line for Rob. And uh, so um, uh, then we called the album Mesh and Lace. And then, you know, Rob chucked in, never really knowing it was always Mesh and Lace, you know, which was um, kind of like uh, possibly being in a maze, trapped, you know. Okay. Okay. And do you know if this was uh, autobiographical, biographical, or was he just writing a story? Uh, we didn't really write love songs, but I think, um, you know, I don't want to, um, <clears throat> you know, preempt Robbie, in case you ever hear, hears this. You're still in a band with him. You might never hear the end of it. I yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was definitely a love song. I think it was dedicated to someone in his head. Fair enough. Well, the drums go to a straight beat here in verse one, along with a great bouncy bass line. The bass tone on this, I, not because you're in front of me, I'm telling you, it is so good. And how the parts just all work together here is great. Uh, and a clean, almost sounds like a hollow body guitar is playing a fairly busy riff, kind of the hook of the song that somehow perfectly exists with the lead vocal here. It just somehow you're allowed to have this moving guitar part with this vocal. And again, a lot of times I've heard producers say it, there's too much going on here. And was that ever a discussion? There was too much going on here. I mean, like I said, Hugh reined us in. The bass line, there's, there's actually two bass lines in the verse. You know, it does that do, 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 do. Do you remember a band called the Rosillos? Not familiar with their stuff, but I know the name. I, I, I think you'd really like them. They had a song called uh, I Love My Baby Because She Does Good Sculptures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the song, I mean, they were like a punk rock band. And, um, you know, obviously no one was a brilliant musician. It was just like two notes. E, 
Hey, Now, I always liked that song, but then I had um, a, a more busy bass line, and I actually wanted to use the busier bass line, which is the second half of the verse. And you said, do something more simple for the first part of that. And so it gives, you know, Gary a chance to kind of weave his way through. Yeah. You know, basically the bass, you know, on that song, the bass and drums were recorded first. Then the guitar parts were, I mean, it was uh, definitely more worked on in the studio, you know, what uh, Gary would play. You know, initially, I think in rehearsals, it was just a bass and drums and the vocal kind of like died. I know it shouldn't work, but it does. You have to, you have to kind of be on the groove. It's hard to explain. I'm sure some of the listeners are going, I don't understand what he means by it doesn't work. It, it totally works here, but it's just typically you don't have something that busy behind a vocal. You know, it's just it, it's awesome, though. I just I marvel at it. Chorus one comes quickly. Thirty seven seconds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty quick. The drums go back to that intro feel on the floor, Tom, the kick and snare with clean guitar chords strummed on the one beat with bass, acoustic guitar, and a synth part running with everything here. And again, the synth part is busy like that other guitar lick. This Dang. synth lick <laughs> is really busy in this chorus, but it completely works. I gotta ask, were the vocals doubled in the chorus? I'm quite sure they are. Yeah, I mean, okay. Do, they, do you know they would have um, uh, possibly been a uh, triple? You know, like a. You know, one of those things, we didn't really know it until it happened that Rob's actually really good at double tracking. Before, we used to use, um, I mean, I'm sure you remember, but, uh, you know, like 16-track studios. And so you would, you'd be running out of space, and there, there used to be this um, ADT machine, automatic double tracking. They were what John Lennon used to use, the Beatles. That are, they were made by Abbey Road people. It was like a slight off, you know, so it sounded like two people were talking at the same time. Yes. I mean, now they have them in logic. I think uh, waves make them. Right. And and basically, instead of having to sing it twice, you're, you're singing it once, but yeah. it's splitting it off by just a couple nanoseconds yeah. or something to make it make it sound like there's two. If we ever got the chance, it was like uh, Robbie would always double track, you know, courses anyway, just to make it sound. You know, it's like, here's the chorus. There's more of the singer. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, the lyric is, I'll stop the world and melt with you. You've seen the difference, and it's getting better all the time. There's nothing you and I won't do. I'll stop the world and melt with you. And I noticed right off the bat, heard this song a million times, but it's interesting. It starts with the lyric, I'll stop the world and melt with you, and it ends with it. I know. 
And I know there's other songs that do that off the top of my head. I can't think of them right now. I know there's other ones, but it's great when the hook is that strong that you can you could have it lead off the chorus and have it end it. On the second line here, it starts off unison on one of those doubles. You've seen the difference, but then you get a harmony on the back half, and it's getting better all the time. That's the only harmony that comes in there. And another thing I have to ask, are there hand claps on the snare here? Uh, quite probably. Uh, you know, this is one of the – I'm quite sure there are. I've got loads of hand claps and stuff in my, you know, folders that in logic way back there. <laughs> Occasionally I get the Rockfield hand claps out for demos. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But there's definitely hand claps in there. And any other people that you talk to recorded at Rockfield will tell you there's a corridor along the live room. It's a great big old barn and the doors open and mics are put outside. So and it just sounds, you know, that it's all like natural reverb going on in there. So and caps and snares. I mean, Simple Minds did their uh, Empires and Dance, the American song, a couple of albums at Rockfield. You know, when really big snare sounds were coming in in the early eighties. I mean, Robert Plant was there when we were there with Cozy Powell getting big. 80s their sounds. Hey everybody, we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but we got lots more with Mick Conroy coming up after the break. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. And now, back to the show. Right out of chorus one, we go into verse two. Dream of better lives, the kind which never hates. Trapped in a state of imaginary grace. I made a pilgrimage to save this human race. Same instrumentation as verse one. And here you get these call and response vocals that are happening that were not on the album version. Yeah. Why all of a sudden did you guys decide, was this something that producer Hugh Jones thought that was needed for a single version? Right, yeah. With, um, so we were on 4AD Records, which was a, a record label that was above a record shop, Beggar's Banquet. They were all part of the same thing. And... Um, you know, 4AD was, you know, like there was a desk over here and Beggar's Banquet was like three desks put together. You know, there was like basically at the time, people in the office started to hear it, thinking, bloody hell, this, you know, modern English, this sounds a bit different for them. And uh, so normally you just put a single out, whereas for this it was decided that we should um, do uh, make it shorter and do 
go back to the studio and do backing vocals and make it more like a you know a, a classic old-fashioned seven-inch single you know that's already we just didn't have time when we were in Rockfield and then when we got there the vo- the vocals kind of came out of thin air you know we should know better we should know see why let's stop the world we, were, we I mean it took us a you know, eight hours to do the entire mix and and chuck on those vocals and move the keyboards because on the album version, the keyboards don't even appear on the first chorus. And we cut this, the second bridge, the future's open wide. Yes. As well. So it was a bit like, but it's a seven inch, you know, uh, let's just chuck everything in. Well, I got to tell you, when I went back and listened to the album version, it sounds naked to me now. Yeah. Because the sing- the single version is the one that everybody hears that I've heard a million times, you know. Here's something else I could not discern, and I maybe you can clear it up because you just said we, but... It sounds like it sounds like that backing vocal, and it starts off verse two. Is it we should know better or you should know better? Because it sounds like you and we on that first note, like there's two voices, someone saying you and someone saying we. Well, I'm going to have to listen to it. It's probably probably did happen, and uh, you know how sometimes when you're in the studio and you kind of write fluff something, and mm-hmm. you come back in and you think. Should I mention it and see if see if anyone else knows? <laughs> yeah. If they don't, you just carry on. You think like, okay, you know, but only you know. Maybe because Hugh did a pretty much. Uh, Hugh was the backing vocalist on the entire album. Oh, okay. So Hugh did some backing vocals, and that that's yeah. interesting. And and maybe it was a situation where yeah maybe maybe it was both said someone else came in and said we while he said you but it starts off you should know better dream of better lives the kind which never hate and that backing vocal you should know why or we should know why yeah <laughs> trapped in the state of imaginary grace you should know better I made a pilgrimage to save this human's race you should see why never comprehending the race had long gone by amazing harmony on that last line same instrumentation as verse one and verse two here but uh where do you think he's going here with the lyrics mick i mean the, the, the lyrics are incredible it's ho- full of hope you know that, that he's talking about there and you know just what could be and what what we i mean when when we were working and doing that album we were absolutely dirt poor you know, we lived in a squat in London, and um, you know, it was then we were transformed to Wales, Rockfield, uh, you know, for six weeks. And it was, uh, I know this sounds really a bit of a cliche, but it, it was um, recorded in about March, so it was like spring was happening, you know, and we mm-hmm. were in this amazingly beautiful countryside, and it was impossible to um, be, you know, too gloomy you know and, and you know we were in a residential place and we were being you know that it was um, just a really it was a really good time for us and i think um you know optimism as well and we were kind of like everyone was really enjoying the process of the recording and you know uh before here quite often you know the last minute changed lyrics you know, it's like, you know, some, some, one, uh, a line might be quite down and then suddenly he wakes up in a much better mood and thinks, do you know what? 
I'm going to change yeah. that too. Everything was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, it's like, you know, you, you guys don't get a lot of uh, days of sun over in the UK. So it's springtime. You, you know, you're seeing the rabbits outside the studio and the birds are, you know, chirping. And it, it, it had to be a good feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's so long ago, but uh, I remember, you know, I remember it being a, you know, we were just having a really good time, making really good music. It sounds like it. Well, Chorus 2 starts off with a backing vocal very reminiscent of what was going on in verse 2. Let's Stop the World is the backing vocal, and then it goes lead backing vocal for the rest of it. I'll stop the world and melt with you. Let's stop the world. You've seen the difference, and it's getting better all the time. Let's stop the world. There's nothing you and I won't do. Let's stop the world. I'll stop the world and melt with you. And you get a great harmony on that. You've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time line. Uh, same instrumentation as chorus one, except that synth part is now played up an octave here. Okay. That wasn't on the original recording on the record, but uh, you did put that uh, lower octave synth part in chorus one. Now it's up here and man, it just lifts this chorus. It's so good. Yeah. That was uh, Hugh. I mean, was uh, you know he was in charge of octaves and uh, pretty much uh, keyboards there. I mean, there's so many things that you know we learned from Hugh Jones, and it was uh, even though it's it's a seven inch, it's still kind of like making things happen, you know, and, and kind of like the interest. I mean, hardly anyone at, people, you know, like I said, you're a muso, you know, most people don't even notice this kind of stuff, you know. It's, <laughs> It's, yeah. it's almost like, I wonder who will notice this if I kind of play that line back to front this time around, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, um, you know, it's a common, you know, studio ploy, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, it's like you, you might have heard it the first time around, but we're going to make sure you hear it the second time. Yeah. It's so good. It just just completely, it's like it's the same chorus, but it's not because of that. And, of course, you're getting in those those backing call and response yeah. vocals, which are great. At the end of chorus two, we get our first chord change outside of the C major to F major. For the first interlude and the second interlude, it's the same chorus progression. We get E minor, G, A minor to C. And it's just such a relief at that point in in both spots. And uh, the first four bars, the drums go to a new tom snare shuffle here with the bass. Sounds like a guitar is is doing harmonics here. Uh, A piano is slightly maybe detuned with some delay here. And on the sixth bar of eight, you get the lyric, the futures open wide. lyric right there it sounds like there's a couple voices saying that that are really reverbed out it's a cool cool sound 
that whole section was, uh, you know, when we started the album with uh, Hugh, we'd, we had lots of bits and bobs and uh, songs, you know, floating around. That, that section was actually uh, originally a different song. That was kind of like a, a bit of a, a, a hangover from the first album, Mesh and Lace. You know, it starts on E minor, how doomy can you get? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this is crazy that you say this because I totally agree. It could be its own separate song. And I've mentioned this on the show before. Have you ever written something where you say, I can't waste this on a bridge part? This is too cool. And to that point, maybe your thinking was, well, we got it's so cool that we have to do it again because it happens again which is weird it's another weird part of this song how you know after this we're going to go to a chorus right back to it but it's so great yeah yeah i mean it, that, that whole part of the song was uh that was where Hugh really came in you know i mean he was uh, you know dominant and present throughout but um and it was originally the 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 future's open wide section was a lot slower but uh, Richard, the drummer, we had that kind of like, uh, you know, floor tom do, do, da, da, do, kind of thing going off anyway, which uh, he, I mean, Richard was really good at that kind of drumming, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, less fall to the floor type stuff kind of thing. I feel like he straddles the line perfectly between rock drummer and dance drummer because there's something so danceable about this song. Yeah, yeah. When we started, you know, working with Hugh, we'd, we'd never played to a click track. So, uh, you know, that was uh, our first album. You know, you can listen. Once I did a, an interview and the guy said to me, there's an amazing tempo change <laughs> <laughs> on one of the songs, as if we did it deliberately. And I said, no, right. you, you know, that was take two and that was all the time we had for. And, you know, we didn't know that there was a tempo, you know, that it shifted that quickly. You know, so it's like Richard, the drummer, had, um, you know, like a, a Dr. Rhythm uh, click track going in his headphones all of the time. And, uh, right. you, you know, with the, a lot of the um, tape was edited, you know, it, or lots of drop-ins were sure. occurring, you know, because, you know, as I said, we, was, you know, we were very young and didn't really, um, you know, before you just do a fill, you know, and hope for the mm-hmm. best, you know, on the next section, you know, whereas... With this, it had to be kind of like a bit more regimented. This whole section, you know, that guitar lick that comes in is so cool. It starts creeping in, followed by an eight bar, uh, eight bars of uh, this synth solo. And the whole band is in here, drums, bass, acoustic guitar. And there's also the intro guitar lick being played with a keyboard lick now together near the end of this musical interlude. It's so great. I think that's just guitar. Is that just guitar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only um, keyboards in, on this record are the piano in the Futures Open Wide and the da 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 in the chorus. It's all um, uh, the guitars would have been, again, you know, all of the lead stuff. There was um, uh, JC120, uh, AC30, a Marshall, and the Leslie all going. Mm same time you know or obviously individually but then all put in 
together. So I'm hearing some delay overtones or something that I was thinking was a keyboard. It's awesome. That would be a, a really old lexicon echo that, uh, oh, wow. that we had in the studio. <laughs> Even though it's a great studio, there wasn't that much equipment that, uh, you know, outboard effects and stuff like that. But um, So we used that lexicon a lot on, you know, like, uh, you know, some people would use an even-tied harmonizer a lot as their go-to thing. That we use the echo. Yeah, you, you know, you said there there wasn't much, you know, outboard stuff to use or whatever. So you use what you had to to get the job done. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was a bit like you know, it it would be, uh, you know, we'd either have to kind of use it in the chorus or a verse. You know, we couldn't use it in both because one had a different setting. You know, with- <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the chorus three comes right out of this musical interlude. the same lyrics as the previous time except for the third line i've seen some changes yeah but it's getting better all the time and do you remember if that was a huge suggestion or who suggested hey we should change it up here for chorus three because every other chorus is the, is the same i knew you were going to ask some tricky questions <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean I, i'm gonna have to ask rob about that yeah, it's only on chorus three. When we, when we come back to chorus four later in the song, it goes back to the original lyric of you've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time. And Do you know what? I'm going to ask you. I mean, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Rob goes, really? I'd completely forgotten about that. <laughs> it's like years ago. I, I once mentioned to the keyboard player, you, you don't actually you don't play in the first chorus, you know. <laughs> And he go like, if we're playing live, you know, he'll still come in. And I say, you know, on on the single, Steve, it's like the second chorus. But he, you know, he goes, yeah, 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 whatever. That's awesome. Well, out of chorus three, we have what I'm calling musical interlude two. It's about the same as the first one. Uh, it's eight bars total. But there's some great, and and I could be wrong here with all the all the stuff you're telling me. But it sounds like great guitar feedback is throughout this one, yeah. as opposed to the first one. That that is that is guitar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I have to ask: Was there ever anybody, Hugh, or anybody that said? It's weird to go back to this musical interlude. We just did it, and we did a chorus, and now we're back to it. Because I don't think it's weird at all. It's amazing. You know, initially, when um, Hugh, I mean, I'm still really good friends with Hugh, and he, he still always says that um, when I first played him, I'm out with you. And I said, I think it's a bit too poppy. And he said, are you out of your mind? And I said, <laughs> no. And he said, there's nothing wrong with pop. You know, whereas we initially, we thought the future's open wide section was the one that we you know was more you know not what we were com- where we were coming from so we were perfectly happy to have it in twice without uh you know there was no problem for us to have that part in there twice and also we we you know we like the kind of um you know like you said c to f no one can be annoyed by those two chords because they ring <laughs> so purely you know but yeah 
but chucking a E minor after it, it's kind of like, whoa. Yeah. It's a bit jarring, but it's not jarring here. And that's what's interesting about it. You know, it, it feels like it's just, it, it was perfectly sewn together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like having a, you know, a bit of a breather. You know, mm-hmm. like it kind of calms everything down for a second or two. It definitely works. For sure. Well, when we get out of this musical interlude, we get into, I guess if there's a bridge in this song, Mick, or, or as, as the English would say, a middle eight, this, I guess, would be the part. And this is probably the most interesting part of the song to me. For nothing else, it's simplicity. It's simplicity, but it's effectiveness. And uh, it's a double-tracked vocal for eight bars, just kind of doing this, hmm, it's humming the melody. And the bass is moving between those C and F notes. Again, simple, but so effective. Yes. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows where um, the hum came from. But, uh, you know, Rob would hum quite often, you know, in, you know, like I was saying, when he's trying to get, uh, you know, melodies and vocal ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, just like that. And uh, part of I'm Out With You as well was uh, me trying to rip off Walk on the Wild Side. (laughs) She says, hey, babe. Take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. That's really interesting because I don't hear that, but okay. Oh, great. This is it. You know, it's like, to, uh, you know, if, <laughs> but, you know, I'd always been like playing around with that as well. And, you know, of course, tempos uh, get changed the more you kind of routine and work out a song. And it was like when we finally came, I mean, I'm out with you, it's 158 which is like insane, you know, like mm-hmm. BPM. So I I really wanted to have a kind of like a tribute to Walk on the Wild Side or a nod in there. And that was that. And it just kind of, you know, it works. You know, what's interesting about the part is that, you know, you, you said that, that Robbie be walking around. We all do it as singers. You're warming up between takes. It almost sounded like he might have been like, you know, coming back from the toilet or something or come walking back in the control room and just humming. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And Hugh or someone went, that's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, I mean, it, it was like, one of the interviews that you did uh, recently. You said, did uh, anyone film it? And the person said, uh, no, iPhones weren't invented then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, this was like a very long time ago. But, you know, it's like someone walked through a door doing something and you just, you know, it's almost like keep walking to the microphone and just do what you did there. The part's great, too. When you guys play it live, everyone's singing. Every dance club or bar I've ever been in when this song comes on, the whole place is humming that part. I know. I mean, mean, when when we did it, you know, it was a bit like, okay, there's a great song, compact little song. Then, you know, like what? we're doing now is like deconstructing and analyzing something you know it's like when you're 19 you know you don't you don't do that kind of thing too much absolutely not but i mean the i melt with you has got you know it's full of hooks you know oh yeah hook lines all over the place you know and there's you know about four or five in that song you know in three three and a half minutes you know and 
you know, the, you know, even like humming can, that section on its own is recognizable as being part of, you know, the greater thing that is I melt with you. I know. I know. It's incredible. Well, coming out of this humming part, the bridge here, what I'm calling the bridge, mm-hmm. uh, there's no backing vocal. That Let's Stop the World does not start off chorus four. It just, just jumps right in. But a great drum fill takes us in here. And that's where I hear this. It, uh, it's not a dance drum fill. It's like a rock drum fill. It's, it's awesome. I'll stop the world and I'll melt with you. And it's getting better all the time There's nothing new and I won't do You know, Richard's not in the band, hasn't played with us for decades, but um, so we've had loads and loads of different drummers and, um, well, not loads, a few. And uh, they all have problems with that feel. It sounds like Animal from, from Sesame Street. It, it's it's <laughs> like, what is this? It's very different. Yeah, completely. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I mean, that uh, uh, Hugh and Richard, I can remember all of this happening. It was like, you know, he wanted to have something that was totally not like a normal drum fill. And he knew that Richard was like not a normal drummer. So, uh, you know, they did, they tried a few. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, that almost sounds, yeah, you know, Richard was, uh, you know, quite a hard person to work with sometimes. But and I think, you know, it was a bit like, I'll show you. Instead of coming on on the downbeat, he kind of like doesn't, and then comes down on like you know one and three quarters instead of you know two even, and he just kind of like it sounds like someone's dropping their sticks or kicking a drum kit down the stairs. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely like whoa it's very it's very knee-jerk but but it's great i can't imagine can't imagine another phil being there the chorus lyric i'll stop the world and melt with you let's stop the world that that uh, response to it you've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time great harmony on that whole line let's stop the world there's nothing you and i won't do let's stop the world i'll stop the world and melt with you let's stop the world i'll stop the world and melt with you and that's where the fade starts along with yet another high synth part that comes in there i believe yeah yeah. i believe that's unless that's like another delayed guitar part <laughs> i actually think it's um uh, the guitar lead line but it's the guitar's going ding, 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 mm-hmm. which is kind of like the verse you know the kind of like intricate busy verse line it's like up up the neck and then uh, for the very outro it goes up another octave Okay, then that's what I'm hearing because, and as soon as I got to this right now, I'm saying, hmm, I bet that isn't a keyboard part. I bet that's that guitar, yeah. and, and and you and you uh, yeah. you corroborated that <laughs> on, on a Les Paul as well, you know. Well, after that, you get to another uh, response of "Let's stop the world," and then "I'll stop the world and melt with you." There's a great harmony on this line. But the melody is different on this one. Completely. And it's almost near the end of the fade out. You get this this little bit of uh, last minute ear candy that comes in and you get another let's stop the world. And the last thing you hear 
is I'll stop the world and melt with you on the fade and the song's done. And, you know, typically at this point, Mick, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the guest, you know, did you ever think, and we've already covered that at the top. You just, how would you ever think 40 years later, you'd be talking about this song and do you still get a kick out of playing it live? Oh yeah. It's incredible. You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, recently, I mean, last year we did the 40th anniversary of after the snow and, um, I mean, we've played I'm Out With You a lot. You know, we've played at every concert we've done since we recorded it. And, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of last year, Robbie would start saying to the audience, you know, put your cameras away because everyone, you know, all you see is iPhones or cameras. Yeah. You know, it's almost like these people, you know, they, you know, they want to be able to put it on their social media and all of that stuff. It kind of, it has, I mean, the song is definitely more famous than the band. You know, without a shadow of a doubt. But, you know, there's no way that you could, um, you know, predict that you'd still be, like, talking about this song, you know, 40 years' time. I'm, sh- I'm sure everyone has said the same thing to you. Well, this is one of those songs, too, Mick, that to me... And, you know, again, a lot of this is, uh, you know, um, (laughs) dictated by (laughs) what your royalty statements look like. But to me, the song is just as popular as it's ever been. It's just it's still everywhere. I hear it all the time. And 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 this has been so much fun before we break. Well, first of all, before we break, thank you for listening to my podcast prior to this. You don't know what that means to me. I, I no, I, 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 um, I love podcasts. I mean, my, my, um, you know, every now and then, I think I've got to empty out all of my downloaded podcasts because my phone is like dying again. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, it was like when, I, when I got to your podcast, I was thinking, God, this guy's made hundred, you know, about one hundred and seventy shows. You know, <laughs> it, I, you know, I, I'm a train spotter as well. You know, a geek. You know, I like to know how people <laughs> think and what they do as well. That is awesome. Well, before we break, anything you'd like to leave the audience with, the uh, listeners of what you got coming up, tours, what's happening? Well, uh, uh, at the end of this uh, last year, we um, uh, went into uh, the, a studio up here in uh, upstate New York in Rhinebeck with a guy called Mario McNulty, who uh, uh, worked a, a lot with David Bowie and uh, Laurie Anderson. And uh, Philip Glass as well. But he's done, he, you know, works with Earl Slick and he's uh, produced um, the last album by uh, uh, an artist called The Anchoress, who's a, a British uh, girl. So we, uh, we've recorded New LP and right as we speak, it's being mixed. So um, that's going to be coming out this year. And uh, we're playing at um, Cruel World in Pasadena on the 20th of March with Susie Sue. Uh, Iggy Pop and uh, Human League and Gang of Four, which is so, oh man, yeah, no, it's gonna be really, it's gonna be amazing that that gig, and uh, Billy Idol, I've just heard as well. <laughs> but um, so uh, you know, basically, we've got a, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, even though we're talking about I'm out of you, we still, you know, like doing uh, new music, and um, you know, there's a, uh, you know, still um. Uh, you know, we still have new stuff coming out and it's, you know, we're really excited about that as well. You know, it, I guess our note reviews made that possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, again, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, no, thank you. It's been good fun.
I Melt With You. What a song. And what a good guy Mick Conroy is. I can't wait to talk to Chris about this episode in the rap segment that's coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. If you like music and you like podcasts and you like to laugh and you like to learn, you need to immediately subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Each week on the One Hit Thunder podcast, we dive deep into the story and back catalog of a one-hit wonder band or artist. From there, we have a good, healthy discussion as to whether they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. We have a huge back catalog, and we've done episodes on everything from Don't Worry, Be Happy and the Macarena to King of Wishful Thinking and Cumbersome. I promise you're going to love the show more than Jaquan loved getting tipsy and even more than Bobby Boris Pickett loved making alternate versions of the Monster Mash. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your podcasts. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Park After Dark an indie electronic rock band from New York City. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Park After Dark. Here's a snippet of their song, Massacre. It's a massacre. It's a fantasy. rap with chris and chris that was a really awesome episode chris right off the bat we learned that mick had listened to chris to make some podcast i was very i was honored i was honored that he tuned in and he knew what he was getting into so that was cool yeah yeah i was honored and flattered uh you know that was just really cool i had no idea and he couldn't have been nicer and more appreciative of this song that has given him a 40 plus year career in the music business very cool Absolutely got to love it when people still have the love for their iconic song. You know, it's not like he's got any sort of resentment about it. He loves it. And I love that. That's always, I mean, I would feel the same way if I had a hit like that. Yeah. You know, we kind of mentioned at the end, they have a brand new record that they're excited about. And and that's what propels most bands is that need to create. We have these songs inside us. They're, they're emotional. We want to create and get them out. And he said, you know, we, we do have other songs behind besides I felt with you were making new music. And he was kind of joking, but there was an underlying tone of seriousness there. It's like, yeah, it's, it's obvious but it's so cool that you can appreciate that song still, even though it's regarded and known as, as, as your biggest song. Yeah. Push forward musically and artistically, but appreciate what 
your past music affords you to be able to do. I think that's the best attitude possible. Yep. There were things that he talked about in this episode. One of those things being John Peel. Now, I've learned a lot about John Peel recently because we did an episode of One Hit Thunder about the band Mm T-Rex. And if you know T-Rex's story at all, John Peel was like the biggest champion of that band and a big part of how so many people found out about them at first. And so it made me think a lot about how important curators and tastemakers are. We live in a world, Chris, when I came up, it was MTV. And more specifically, it was shows like 120 Minutes and Headbangers Ball and things like that, where you have these tastemakers, these curators, be it Matt Pinfield, who I'm sure had some say in the music that played on there. I mean, maybe not 100%, but definitely some, or Ricky Rackman or whoever, right. who... You know, there's something to be said for for that, how these influential voices, on one hand, expose great artists to the world, and on the other hand, kind of block out some of the garbage, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, you could take this all the way back to, you know, prior to social media, you just said MTV and things of that nature, John Peel Sessions, Top of the Pops, um, there was, you know, uh, American Bandstand. For me, it was the record store. Finding the cool record store in whatever town and getting your pulse on that town and what that was like and talking to the clerk and being like, hey, what's going on? Oh, man, have you heard this? Check this out. Right. I mean, it could be as simple as you go to your record store. And I remember (laughs) at the record, I'm sure at some record stores, they still have this, but you have the employees picks on the wall. Yeah. Like, and if you saw someone who had the same taste in you, you might want to check it out. I mean, I think there's importance in that. Uh, Also... Something I think is always important in a song, Chris, are parts that are so memorable. And of course, this is a great song front to back. But to me, the most memorable part of this song is the hummed part. The mm-hmm. mm. Yeah. And it's almost like you wait for that moment. You you brought up several times, Chris, being at a party when this song's on yeah. and how people sing along and being at the show. What a fun and different thing to sing along to like it probably wasn't until the crash test dummies came along (laughs) you know a decade and a half later after this that people could hum in the crowd to sing along you know yeah there's not that many songs that hum and i'll tell you that hum part would have thrown me for a loop if hugh jones is the producer i'll tell you what i would have done it's so good and so catchy i'd be i know i would have said the rest of the band shouldn't we start the song off like this or shouldn't it be somewhere else in the song and that's that's what would drive me crazy and hey have the restraint to go nope this is where it comes in it's the one time that's where it's at it's great it's also crazy thinking about tracking hums because your mouth is closed. <laughs> you can't do the <laughs> techniques that you do, the singing techniques yeah. that you do. It seems like a tricky thing to do. Yeah, someone can't tell you, hey, enunciate a little bit more. My, my mouth's closed. <laughs> yeah, do that home <laughs> a little harder. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Mick referenced that they were young when they wrote this. It's such a perfect song that you don't think about it being a bunch of young people writing it and now deconstructing it 40 years later. It was hard, and I'm sure it would be hard for anyone to talk about why 
they did the things they did. But man, oh man, it's a good thing that they did do the things they did. Yeah, for sure. And Mick had a pretty darn good memory going back 40 years. You know, there's sometimes I ask questions. He even laughed at some point later and he goes, I had a feeling you were going to ask that, you yeah. know, <laughs> which yeah. which made me which made me laugh a little bit. But yeah, who knew? Like he said, you, you can never, ever plan these things out. I know I didn't do it. Any other musician I've talked to, you know, did you think you'd be doing this in five years or 10 years? And you weren't thinking about that when you were 19 years old, 20 years old. You were thinking about, hey, there's 10 people here. That's that's two more people than the last time we played. And they're giving us a six pack this time. Hooray. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, this song sounds as great now as it did then. And at the same time, when I hear this song, it transports me back you know, it's like the song is like a, a time capsule or something. It puts you in that mood. You put this song on. If you have an 80s party, you put this song on. It takes you there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's something that's so amazing about music is the way that sounds can transport you to another time. That's it's incredible. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, uh, the, the listeners, and we know this from all of you, from your feedback, you, you say every week, you know, the, the memories I have attached to this song, that, that's what this podcast is really based about. It's always about that. It's what memories do you have? You hear it in Punchline. People come up to me all the time in Less Than Jake. This song means so much to me. I, I broke my leg in summer camp, and this song got me through it, or whatever it is. It could be the most ridiculous thing, and uh, that's what music does. It's great. I'll tell you something else that's great, Chris. What's that? Our supporting cast, which is our VIP program over at ChrisDemakes.com, where you get bonus episodes each week of the after party for the price of a cup of coffee. Head over to ChrisDemakes.com. We'd love to have you in our supporting cast, as well as the ChrisDemakes podcast Facebook group. That's free to join. And we have a lot of fun in there. We take your suggestions. We get some great discussions going. And yeah, we're going to wrap this one up now. I want to thank this week's guest, Mick Conroy from Modern English. And we'll see you next week. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.